bit different than traditional mindfulness meditation, but I think very compatible and very close to it in many ways. And as we're coming to the end of our time in this beautiful space, I thought it would be especially important to open our hearts, particularly tonight. So that's the focus. To start our thinking and our concept of heart, I have a reading from the Indian sage Punjaji. Short reading, he says, happiness is permanent. It is always there. What comes and goes is unhappiness. If you identify with what comes and goes, you will be unhappy. If you identify with what is permanent and always there, you are happiness itself. So to identify with what's permanent in us, I'm going to offer us some words to lead our meditation tonight, and then we'll have a period of silence. And I'll ring the bell at the end, and then we'll have a talk. So to begin this guided meditation, I'd like to invite you to put your hands over your heart. With your hands over your heart, breathe. Take a few deep breaths. Feel the motion of the breathing. Feel the warmth. Let your awareness be mostly with your chest. Observe the processes there. Notice the expansion and the contraction. Notice if there's any tightening. And as you bring your awareness to it, does it loosen? Notice if there's any other processes in your chest. And stay with the process. There may be words that come, words to describe the process. And as much as possible, just stay with the experience of the process. Let the words drift into the background. Notice your heart. Possibly you'll notice the beating Maybe there's some feelings. Some people experience a feeling of vitality. Sometimes there's, there's tenderness. What do you feel in your heart? And again, let the feeling be your focus, not the words that describe the feeling. Let it be the feeling that's there. So in this meditation, we're going to let our awareness stay with or near our heart. We're going to notice what's there. If thoughts come, notice what the thoughts are. And then let them go. So when you're ready, you can put your hands in your normal meditation posture. Now that we've focused our attention on our chest and our hearts. And as we go into silence... Let the experience continue. Stay focused on this part of you. This part of you that 
is very connected with mind and yet has a, some unique qualities. So this is a chance to get to know your chest, your heart space, your breathing space from the inside out. So I'm going to be quiet now and just let the breathing and the beating and the resting between the breaths continue. Just rest in the openness and the spaciousness that your heart provides. We'll continue like this until you hear the bell. Welcome. Nice to have you here this evening. I'm Jim Bronson, and Gil asked me to say some things tonight about my Dharma path and a little bit about how I've gotten here and uh, what it looks like from here, and maybe we'll have a chance uh, a little later on to do the same from you. This is the heart season of the year for me. This is the time that, that uh, on the outside it's, it gets chilly and dark and the days are short and it's time to kind of pull in, be at the heart of the year, be at the heart of my life. This is a time that I like to increase my meditations, I like to journal, I like to listen to music those kind of contemplative, inward-drawn activities. And so tonight, since it's the heart of the year, and uh, soon we have our solstice coming, which will be the actual inner heart of the year, I'd like to focus on heart. And the meditation we just did is a way of kind of preparing for that A heart meditation, a heart-focused meditation is quite similar to a breath-focused meditation with some differences. And so let's talk for just a second about what some of those differences are. First of all, the heart beats more rapidly. And so as a primary focus or primary object for meditation... A lot of people feel that the heart is just too driving, too insistent, uh, maybe too enthralling. Other people say, yeah, they, when they settle into their heart, it's, uh, it's a space where they feel a lot of openness and, and acceptance and are able to uh, experience a spaciousness. So tonight, focusing on the heart is an opportunity to kind of play it off against where you may have been meditating using breath as the primary focus. 
I got involved in heart-focused meditation last fall when I had the opportunity to be back at IMS, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And I was there for the last six weeks of their three-month-long sit. And it was an experience that was about being in heart for me. Uh, it was the, the, the winter came upon us as we were there. Every time I went outside, the sky was a little grayer. There were fewer leaves on the trees. The earth was really pulling into itself. And so for me, the meditation was really natural to just kind of pull in. And for about two or three weeks, I uh, struggled with, uh, will I stick it out? How can I possibly last six weeks? Uh, The longest I had done up until that point was a 10-day retreat. And uh, so six weeks seemed like forever. And uh, so the first couple of weeks were a lot about dealing with this uh, monkey mind that wanted um, my normal comforts. It wanted uh, my normal length of days. The days back there started uh, with a meditation at 5.30, and our last meditation was over at 10 o'clock. And uh, so it was meditate, walk, meditate, walk, eat, meditate, walk, meditate, walk, meditate, walk, eat, like that all day long. And then uh, every other day we would have a live person who would talk to us in the evening. But we never got to say a word. And uh, so the communication, if it needed to happen, which was really an extreme case, was just by short notes. And so this, as you can imagine, was a chance to really deepen, really settle. And uh, so I finally, in in some way, I, uh, it's, it's the grace of uh, whoever structured my inner space, it wasn't me, uh, whoever put those process, processes in there, finally the monkey mind started dying down and I started being able to stay with my breath for a while and then with my heartbeat for a while. And then I could spend days kind of staying with it even when I was walking. And it was... <clears throat> Such a gift to have that much peace. Uh, Outside, I had a vague sense that there was an election that had happened. Uh, There was a a little note that got on the board one day. It said, uh, the election has happened. If you want to find out what the result is, lift this sheet. And you could lift the sheet and look under there if you wanted to. And some people did, and (laughs) I didn't. I resisted. And so the whole time I was there, I thought that the election was decided and that uh, uh, it was strange to finish the retreat and find out that uh, there was really nothing under the sheet. It just said, it, hasn't, it isn't decided yet. <laughs> so in this place, this peaceful place, even though there was a hundred other people, there was so little distraction that I could really listen and really tune in And the gift of it, for me, was to begin making friends with my heart. My heart had been, uh, I guess I would say, somewhat problematic in my lifetime. Uh, I think of uh, romances that didn't work out. Uh, I think of disappointments, uh, losses. Um, And so my heart was a space that I kind of associated with trouble and, and uh, difficulty. And yet when I was able to sit and bury, I uh, more and more began to sense what Punjaji talked about in the piece that I read in the beginning. Let me just read that once again. He says, happiness is permanent. It is always there. What comes and goes is unhappiness. If you identify with what comes and goes, you will be unhappy. If you identify with what is permanent and always there, you are happiness itself. 
So anyway, the gift of Barry and that whole experience was being able to identify with another way of uh, being in my heart. Not the troubled heart, not the unsatisfied or longing heart, but the heart that was bigger than that, that incorporated the trouble and the unhappiness and the loss and the confusion and the longing. But it was big enough to also have a happiness, uh, an openness, uh, a possibility, an aliveness that was there just as well. And so the experience for me was developing the, the ability to kind of slide back and forth, to sort of touch into the grief, to touch into the, the memories of loss and challenge and difficulty, and to let that sort of dissolve into the emptiness and the openness of the happiness that was really there. And... Uh, So that's where I want to go tonight. I want to spend a little time uh, going into more what heart involves. And by the end of the evening, I hope that you will have a sense of heartedness. Uh, In the dictionary, it talks about four kinds of meaning for heart. And heartedness is the, the one that I want to hang on to. The first three are, you probably guessed already, heart, the pump in the body that moves the fluid, heart, the, the center of things, the center of a piece of wood at the heart of the matter, and heart uh, courage, having the heart to overcome, the heart to continue when things got tough. And so those are uh, descriptors, uh, they're nouns. Um, but the last definition in the dictionary is to heart. It's a verb. And I, I really liked that. I liked thinking of heart as something that is, is not just a thing, but is a process. So to heart. The Buddha says some things about heart, but surprisingly, if you look at, if you try to scan databases, which I have fun doing sometimes, uh, scan the database for heart, and you don't find many entries where the word heart is used. Most often, uh, Buddhist writing is about mind and mindfulness and uh, mind space and mind processes. And so heart isn't used all that often. But here's one time that it is used, and I really like it. This is from the Dhammapada that was translated by Thomas Byram. The Buddha said, There is no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of the heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. So I think, again, he's, he's talking about this space that I was getting familiar with, which is the fire, the greed, and all of that. But beyond the sickness and beyond the longing, there's a joy, the joy of freedom. He goes on to say, Health, contentment, and trust are your greatest possessions, and freedom your greatest joy. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of living in the way. When I contemplated heart space at Barry, I came up with what I called heart events. And these were things that uh, happened in my life that, were, that had a repetitive quality uh, they would come in some form, a memory, a vision, a, a feeling. And, uh, and I would mindfully attend and, uh, and then eventually it would drop away but come back again. And so I had these kind of, it was like I had a landscape with some peaks on it. And the peaks were these heart events. So the first heart event that happened to me that 
really mattered. The first time that I really think I felt my heart, well, I was three years old. I was being raised by my grandma and grandpa. I lived in Denver. And my mom was a single mom and pretty much absent. She was busy working and, and uh, trying to restart her life after some difficulties she had had. And so I lived with my grandma and grandpa. And one day I was walking through a swinging door into the kitchen and I pushed on the swinging door, and just behind it was a cupboard door that was open, and it had glass in it. And so the swinging door whacked the cupboard door, and the glass shattered. And shards of glass came down, and they fell on the floor, and one shard came down and caught me right in the leg. And I looked down, and there was all this blood coming out, and it was very dramatic. And I was three years old. This was the first time that my universe had collapsed, at least as far as I could remember. And I just, I mean, the noise and the, the, uh, the, the breaking and the blood and all of that just uh, really captured my attention, I guess you would have to say. <laughs> and uh, so I was just starting to spin off into woe is me and uh, how difficult it is and maybe I'll just totally disappear at the end of this or maybe uh, this is... Uh, you know, I can't survive this somehow. I, I was just starting to go into that. My grandmother swept over and she grabbed me in her arms and she said, oh, it's okay. Don't worry. This is going to be okay. I'll clean up the glass. Oh, let's fix this cut on your side. And she was just so calm and so peaceful that it gave my heart, uh, uh, at that point, I think, a shock of resilience instead of a shock of terror. And it's something that I, I really think I've drawn on in the rest of my life. Uh, every time some tragedy comes up, uh, psychologists tell us that uh, tragedy really uh, has the quality of bringing up prior tragedies that are similar to it. Kind of the way our brains work is to see what it's similar to so that we know something about it. Well, when uh, I get hit with something that's remarkably tough, my grandmother's sweeping me up and reassuring is here. And I can access it if I stay in touch with this. If I don't, if I'm up in, in this region up here and I start getting into the uh, thinking what happens, the the processing about it, I miss it. And so thank goodness for the experience at Barry to, to give me a sense that I really can go here when I want to and when I need to. I can move out of the mental space. There's a guy that I saw recently at the Foundation for Global Community named Robert Keck. Anybody see the presentation by Robert Keck? He, Judith did. He's... Um, a, a doctor who's done a lot of research on the spiritual process, and he's written a couple books about it. And he talks about the spiritual process that we are in right now as a society as being a 12-inch journey, the journey from here down to here. Simply a 12-inch journey, and I, I like that concept. That's To me, that's what it feels like. It feels like... My identity can be here, and it's fine. I, you know, it's good if I'm solving problems, if I'm having to compare things or do uh, analysis or whatever. That's great. But to access resilience like I did when that glass broke, I have to be down in here and to uh, be with other people that are wanting to access resilience. I, it, it really makes a difference if I, my identity and my focus and my attention is down here. So when we did the meditation this evening, I was hoping to help us all take that 12-inch journey and to do it mindfully so that that process is there. We can take that 12-inch journey whenever we need to. One of the other heart peaks or heart events in my life was um, 
one that is hard to describe because words fail. Um, it was an experience that was big and it had a gestalt feeling to it. And it, it uh, at the time I was in fourth grade, I was walking home from school and it was later on in the afternoon in the winter time, interestingly enough, trees had mostly lost their leaves and I was walking across the street from my school kind of alone, kind of in a different space because I, I had stayed after school for some reason and the season had changed and it was almost dark. And, and uh, as I walked across the street, there was a sense that I had that there was some aliveness and some presence in the branches of these trees. And it was completely remarkable. And at the time, I had no words for it. Um, I've put words on it later. The words are something like an opening, um, a sense of the importance of life, uh, a sense of reverence for life. That's, those are the words that try to describe it. But really the experience was more just kind of walking into a fluid almost and being immersed in this fluid. And I think... Uh, you know, that was one experience that I remember as a kid. I, after talking with other people about this, and, uh, and especially young people, I think it's not, not infrequent to have those experiences. I, I think a lot of people have those experiences, different kinds, different sorts, but a sense of the, the beauty and the transcendence and, the, and, a, and a reverence for life. And so for me, that was a peak hard experience. I uh go I was you know I did the usual school thing and off to college and and met a wonderful woman and married and had a business and and through all of that uh it was a busy time and an active time but but I could always touch into that sense of reverence for life and uh so it's it's amazing to me to think that when I was just in fourth grade, there was this, this thing that I've drawn on maybe every day or certainly often. One of the pieces of art that I, that I think helped me understand more about it is a poem by the Sufi poet Hafiz. Hafiz. And he writes, It happened again last night. Love popped the cork on itself splattered my brains across the sky. I imagine now for ages something of Hafiz will appear to fall like stars. So I think it's that same experience. Love popped the cork on itself. My brains were splattered across the sky. So that to me was another peak heart experience. And um, pieces of uh, of all of that seemed uh, very strange and difficult to understand until I got to graduate school and had the opportunity to take a class. I was in Seattle and uh, I was getting a master's degree in physical oceanography, so I was very scientifically focused. But there was a part of me that that wasn't alive or wanted to be more alive. And the, they had this thing called the Free University of Seattle. And I signed up for a course called Meditation. And I'd heard just a little bit about meditation, spooky, mystical process with spooky, mystical people. And, and uh, I didn't know exactly where to go with it, but the guy that taught the class, a guy named Larry, uh, created a remarkable space I could walk in that class and feel settled and feel in my heart, I guess I would, I would say. I didn't realize it at the time. And it turned out that uh, he led me to some reading by a guy named Krishnamurti. And Krishnamurti had just published a book at that time called Freedom from the Known. And the book was about making the 12-inch journey. The known is where we've been. The known is uh, 
a tool, and the known cannot lead us to new life. It cannot lead us to um, the fullness of who we are, really. And so he wrote this book, and I have still in my library at home the very same book. Inside, the price says (laughs) $3.95, dated 1968. And so I thought I'd just read it. A little piece of this, since we're on the topic of heart, and we thought about stars and splattering brains across the sky, this is what Krishnamurti said. When you look at the stars, there is a you who is looking at the stars in the sky. The sky is flooded with brilliant stars, there is the cool air, and there is you, the observer, the experiencer, the thinker. You with your aching heart, you the center creating space. But if you are all the time aware of what you are doing, you can cultivate awareness. And out of that awareness, you will begin to see the nature of pleasure, the nature of desire desire and sorrow, and the utter loneliness and boredom of man. And then you will begin to come upon that thing called open space. So it is up to you. There is no leader. There is no teacher. There is nobody to tell you what to do. You are alone in this mad, brutal world in the midst of wide open space. So Krishnamurti was a piece of it for me and uh, still is. Later on, I uh, got real busy with my life and didn't practice meditation much at all. I had a period of about three years where I was a a very systematic, strong meditator. Um, Spent three years at a community in Scotland called Findhorn. You might have heard of a spiritual community. And uh, my oldest son, my first son, was born there. And... All of a sudden, my life got very busy and uh, things got very compelling and the meditation practice kind of died into the background. And for a bunch of years, I raised kids and had a business and had wonderful clients. I had an organizational development business where I would really uh, experience heart connections with my clients. And it was a wonderful opportunity to, to care to be involved in uh, caring relationships with people that I was making my living with. And, uh, and then I came to n- another one of those peak heart experiences. And this one wasn't so good. Uh, it wasn't uh, uplifting. And I'm just going to mention it really briefly. Uh, there's volumes to say about it, and I've spent a lot of time on... Uh, working on it and journaling and uh, with psychotherapy and with uh, holotropic breath work. And uh, the experience was that my father killed my stepmother. And then he turned the gun on himself and killed himself. And then shortly after that, uh, in an unconnected way, uh, totally unconnected, My wife contracted cancer and over the period of years declined and died of cancer in 1995. And all of the the force of my life seemed to come to an end. It was like uh, I couldn't figure out why I should get out of bed in the morning. I couldn't make a decision. There was no reason to make any decision one over the other. Uh, nothing seemed to have meaning. And the, all of that uh, left me with a lot of time. Uh, I had no energy to do anything, but I just had all this time. And thank goodness that I had a meditative practice that at that point was 25 years old. And, uh, but there, there was still that kernel of... Uh, There is a place in meditation where there is uh, 
an openness, a healing quality. I knew that uh, my highest priority at that point was to heal this emptiness, to heal this loss, this uh, uh, lack of direction, lack of, of belief in myself and in life. And so that started uh, a process that led me to this room, as a matter of fact. Uh, I looked in the paper one day and saw an advertisement that said that there was this group of people that was reading a book by Pema Chodron called When Things Fall Apart. And I thought, that's for me, when things fall apart. (laughs) And it was. I bought the book, and it was just... a godsend, and still is. I, uh, I find it to be one of the clearest, most succinct representations of what really goes on in my life, and probably in a lot of people's lives. Um, so I showed up for the uh, discussion one night, started at 6.30 on a Monday night, and uh, at the end of the discussion, I was walking out the door. I thought, hmm, nice people. Um, Interesting book. I'll be back next week. And I looked in this door right there, and I saw all these people sitting and getting ready to meditate. And uh, it clicked me back into another way of dealing with where I was. Not this way, but more 12 inches lower. And so that started my a wonderful association with the Sangha, which has been just fantastic. And doing more retreats the year after that, I spent a total of uh, what really was four months uh, on retreat. And uh, it was just that I couldn't get enough. It was I, I needed the, uh, the breath. I needed to, to be with the breath and let the breath heal. And so... I uh, began to find a meaning again, and I began to find a, a way to go forward and a way to make decisions. Suzuki Roshi, uh, in another book that we uh, considered in this book group that uh, is associated with our Sangha, Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he says, life without Zazen is like winding your clock without setting it. It works perfectly but it doesn't tell time. And that was me at that point. Uh, my clock was wound, but I didn't have it set. There was, there was no reference point. And so it didn't matter what time it was. And so instead of him saying life without Zazen, I would say life without a mindful process, or life without heart, or life without sitting, for me. And uh, so, fortunately, uh, I found that there was a focus in Buddhist practice on heart. And my heart started to heal. There were some key things that happened along the way. when my wife was so sick, my biggest fear was that I was going to go bankrupt. I was trying to run this business. I was, my, uh, I was the owner of the business. And uh, every month it came time to make the payroll. And, uh, but there was all these other distractions going on. And uh, it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen. And uh, in the midst of fearing that we would end up on the street or, you know, without resources. Five people independently, unbidden by me, with with no request or or even mention of it, came up to me and they said, you know, things are probably pretty tough right now. If you need some money, let me know. And it just caught me at at the perfect place, the perfect time, It's what uh, trainers call the teachable moment. It was compassion in a big way. And it helped me get out of this fear space into more a space of being hearted, of, of having the heart to go on. 
as I left work in the morning, I'd walk by a box that had newspapers in it. And I'd look at these newspapers and I'd think, you know, in there are some classified ads and I bet you there's a job that would be a lot easier than what I'm doing right now. Trying to run a company and uh, all of that. I just thought, you know, I'll just put my quarter in the machine, I'll take the paper out, I'll glance at the ads. And then I'd catch myself and say, wait a second, what is this? You know, uh, wherever you go, there you are, all of those good phrases. So I, I left it the first morning, didn't get the newspaper. Second morning, same thing. I, it was like there was a magnetic force on that newspaper box, and I wanted to get that newspaper. Morning after morning, I'd pass that newspaper by. And as it turned out, things worked. And uh, the business thrived uh, over time, and I had some wonderful staff that really helped me out a lot. And... So thank goodness uh, I didn't have to check the classifieds and end up in a who knows uh, whether it would be better or not space. But the but it gave me a, an appreciation for what compulsion there is with these mind states that uh, focus on fear. When I was back east uh, at IMS, Joseph Goldstein was one of the teachers. And he tells about this experience where he spent months and months in fear, just being afraid of, of finances, of organizations, of people, and, uh, and thinking that you know, he had a lifetime of psychotherapy ahead of him. And, and, uh, and one day, to his colleague, Sharon Salzberg, he mentioned that he was having these fears, and he didn't even want to mention it because he didn't... It didn't feel good to bring it up. And she looked at him and she said, Ah, but Joseph, that's just a mind state. And it broke it for him. And he realized that there really was space inside of him that could contain the fear. It's fine to have the fear, but there was a bigger space. And around the bigger space was this happiness that Punjaji was talking about that was available even in the midst of the fear, even in the midst of the difficulty. There was an accessible warmth and happiness. I'd like to have a chance to let you explore the landscape of your heart a little bit more. We meditated with heart as the primary object. And I've talked a little bit about some of the key or uh, most poignant heart events in my experience, where the intensity was up for me and where I, I draw on wisdom and compassion over the years that has grown around that. And so what I'd like to do is have each of us reflect uh, just quietly, just silently about you and your experience in life and what some events, some key heart events are for you. So let's just get into a comfortable posture. And uh, open your chest and just take a few deep breaths. And as you stay with the quiet inside, notice if there are any heart events that come to your awareness. Something that happened early in your life, something as a young adult, something when you were alone, something with other people. And if you notice a heart event, investigate it a little. What feelings are with it? What textures, what tones? 
what qualities And when you have one that you feel you have some awareness around, let that one go and let another one come. I have a couple minutes of silence and just explore the landscape of your heart as it's grown through your lifetime. So I'd like you to have a moment just to um, express a little about this heart space. And what you express is really up to you. Uh, You can talk about the, uh, the event itself or what wisdom came from that event or how maybe there was a quality of compassion with it or maybe it was just... Uh, high intensity. So whatever you'd like to express, but I'd like um, to invite you to get together with, um, say, let's do it in three. So find two other people near you and get together in threes and we'll spend about five minutes um, and let's make it, let's make it nine minutes. We're in, we're in threes. So assume you have about three minutes to listen and uh, speak. So everybody take a turn. I'll ring the bell twice so you know that when three minutes is up and when six minutes is up, and then we'll come back together again. So take this time just to, to put some words around this elusive heart experience. Okay, go for it. Okay, wrap up those conversations. Make sure that you introduce yourselves to each other so you know who has had that experience you've shared. And also honor each other. Express appreciation to each other for what you've just shared. So just take a minute to do that. Okay. Just a short uh, poem and then we'll share. This is by Marcus Borg. He says, Life is short, and we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel with us. So be swift to love, and make haste to be kind. Seems like a specially rich thought for this time of year and this time of our world's history. Make haste to be kind. Be swift to love.
Well, I'd like to have uh, maybe three or four people just share uh, very briefly uh, just a little about what you, uh, what you discussed, what came up for you, a thought about this whole process of opening heart awareness, of enriching and expanding that spaciousness and what you discovered along the way, your landscape. So who would share? Jim, thank you. Um, yeah, I think for me there was a, a sense of um, lightness and openness. Uh, we talked about a sense of awe and wonder connection with the nature around us. Thank you. Who else would share something with us? Yeah, please. takes little kids for you to understand the meaning of uh, something coming out from your heart because uh, you know I shared something which kind of s- different experiences but uh, but something that makes you really understand because kids are totally involved in their their minds everything is from their heart and so sometimes um, reactions from little kids I mean really little kids um, can truly show you how uh, you know true love from the heart is, and uh, so it takes little kids sometimes we do you understand that. So mm-hmm. Just a thought. Thanks. share this in the group, but I thought about it in the meditation, which was um, forgiveness comes from your heart. And there was a time in my life that I had a lot of alienation with my father. And at the moment of forgiveness, it was a tremendous uh, release of the heart. I had, which I, I shared, I'd like to share with, with all of you, was my experience with, in the first sitting that we did with the heart, it was it was kind of difficult for me. Then after your speak and uh, getting back to the heart, it completely settled and it was really warm and I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I also appreciate the challenge of being in a meditative space and then talking. It's it's really difficult. It's no wonder that when we go on retreat, we don't talk. It's, you know, it's hard. <laughs> it's a gift not to have to talk. So I appreciate you going with being pushed a little bit to be meditative and then to talk about it. I want to finish by just putting uh, an overview on some things that I think are not 
in the traditional uh, American view of heart. Uh, our, our view of heart, if you, if you look at our traditional um, <coughs> cultural media kind of communications, uh, what comes up around heart is often romance, uh, heart tied with romance, uh, also uh, with um, uh, courage and energy. And I'd like to add a couple of pieces to that based on my meditative experience, and you can play off of that based on your med- meditative experience. And one piece is that to me the heart is a sensing organ. It may be one of the most powerful sensing organs in the body. It is a place of awareness that isn't verbal. And so since we have such a verbal society, uh, it can get overlooked. But um, you're sharing about forgiveness. That's a sense. It's a tangible, physical sense, knowing that that process of whatever, hanging on, clinging to what might have been or something like that, that that's finished. So the heart has that ability to sense, to know when that, when that's finished, or to know when you're in a vitalized space, when, when uh, things are vital and, and important and powerful. And um, Both sides, the heart senses loss and the heart senses vitality. And then the other thing that I think it senses, and this follows on from the forgiveness idea again, is compassion. I think the heart is an organ of compassion. It is the, the place where you come from when somebody is in trouble and you surround them with an appreciation and you let them know it's okay. You let them know that they can rest that you are there, that your support is there, that you are one with them. And so that's the sensing side of the heart that I think is um, very powerful. And then the the last piece I want to put some words on is that the heart is a, a healing space. The heart knows how to heal. And I think... Uh, there's a quality to it that um, is um, is this allowing, this opening, this this spaciousness that uh, it reminds me of a, sort of a recycling process. That uh, when you can take something to your heart, not not get stuck in your head, but actually go the twelve inches and take it into your heart, that it can. Uh, be divided up into its key components, into the elements. Those elements can reform uh, and they can come back together again in a, in a wholer way, in a healthier way. And so the heart is kind of a crucible, it feels like to me. It's kind of a, a healing crucible. And uh, it's certainly in my experience... Uh, as much as I can drop down, uh, the crucible works. Uh, as much as I don't drop down, uh, I feel like I'm delaying a process or uh, getting off track. And so I uh, feel that I am probably way overboard in being a heart, um, um, a heart. Oh, file, uh, an appreciator of the heart, <laughs> a fan of the heart. And, uh, and it's really uh, my expressing it tonight is probably mostly because I'm, it's so new to me. It's so much of my life, I have been uh, kind of a linear problem solver. And using the heart as a crucible for healing and using it as a sensing tool is so new that uh, it just seems really fresh and, and uh, feels important to share it. And I really appreciate the space in Buddhist teaching and in our Sangha 
the Dharma and the Sangha uh, both have been a great support for me in being able to come to this uh, place where I think it's another part of myself that maybe in the latter part of my life it's going to be as important or more important than the the top 12 inches. (laughs) So... That is all we have time for tonight. And uh, I want to thank you very much for putting up with uh, maybe a a slightly uh, non-ordinary way of working with this process. And uh, encourage us all to stay with our hearts as we go into the holiday season. It's well known that the holiday season is a time for grieving as well as for joy. And... uh, So let your heart space be the place where the grieving and the joy can both intermingle and where there's a a sense of Poonjaji's happiness, the permanent happiness that is always there. What comes and goes is unhappiness. If you identify with what comes and goes, you will be unhappy. But if you identify with what is permanent and always there, You are happiness itself. So have a happy holiday and a rich holiday and uh, be at peace.